Actually, I have a song prepared for you tonight that I'd like to sing. I'm just kidding. But I would like to speak to you about what we all do, which is working for the Lord. I saw a sign not too long ago that it read, Work less and enjoy life more. And as I looked at the sign, I thought, you know, as a teenager, I could have written that sign. Because I remember the chores my parents would give me to do, and I hated Saturdays because I always had a list of things I was to do before I could do anything else. I was like the lazy kid who said, I always do my exercises every day. As soon as I wake up, I go at it. Up, down, up, down, up, down. And then he said, after about three minutes, I say to myself, now for the other eyelid, up, down, up, down. You know, unfortunately, that attitude sometimes carries over from childhood even into adulthood, where we think, if there's only a way I could escape the work and get rich quick, either by some investment or some, some scam, anything, uh, I read about one who did that. This was sent to me from a friend of mine who works for the Justice Department, of all places. A true story about a man from Charlotte, North Carolina, who uh, purchased a box of very rare and expensive cigars. And he insured them, among other things, against fire. Within a month, having smoked the entire stockpile of these great cigars and without having made his first premium payment on the policy, he filed a claim against the insurance company. In the claim, he stated the cigars were lost, quote, in a series of small fires, <laughs> close quote. The insurance company refused to pay, citing the obvious reason that the man had consumed the cigars in the normal fashion. The man sued and won. In delivering the ruling, the judge agreed with the insurance company that the claim was frivolous, but the judge stated that nevertheless, the man held a policy from the company in which it had warranted the cigars were insurable and also guaranteed that it would insure them against fire without defining what is considered to be unacceptable fire and was obligated to pay the claim. Rather than endure a lengthy and costly appeal process, the insurance company accepted the ruling and paid $15,000 to the man for his loss of the rare cigars in the fires. Now for the best part. After the man cashed the check, the insurance company had him arrested on 24 counts of arson. with his own insurance claim and testimony from the previous case being used against him, the man was convicted of intentionally burning his insured property and was sentenced to 24 months in jail and $24,000 fine. Now that's the exception. The rule is, for most people, work for them is an identity especially if they do something worthwhile. The first question we ask someone is, what is your name? The second question is, what do you do for a living? And when somebody has a worthwhile calling, it makes it even better. 
A few weeks ago, I was down in New York City at Ground Zero, and we were establishing the Billy Graham Prayer Center, and while I was there one day, I met a firefighter. And this firefighter was coming out of Ground Zero. He had worked 12-hour shift. He got a quick bite to eat, something to drink, and was marching right back in. He said he had lost 17 of his buddies, and he was not going to rest till he could dig some of them out. And although he was tired, it was, it was that higher purpose, that higher work that drove him back to ground zero to hunt for his friends. One of the men that I met there impressed me. He was a firefighter who showed me a piece of rubble in an area where a building had fallen. It was the U.S. Customs Building. And he said, I want to show you something. I was with two FBI agents, two firefighters, and couple of New York policemen. And they took me to an area of rubble where there was a cross. And the cross had been formed by the destruction. It was a couple of beams that had been ripped apart. And after it fell, there was a cross in a perfect pile of rubble. And he said to me, he goes, I was pulling bodies out of here all day long. I was so depressed, I was so hopeless, and then I saw the cross, and it was like a sign from God. And he said, then I had hope, and it drove me on to get more people out of there. The cross to him was a sign that elevated his work to a whole different level. The cross is our sign, isn't it? It's the sign of what we do. It's the sign of God's greatest work his greatest demonstration of love ever was the cross of Jesus Christ, and you and I, the Bible says, are co-laborers with Christ. The highest work anyone could ever do is being done by some of the people in this room as we labor together. Paul the Apostle said, we are workers together with him, and we are God's fellow workers, he said in another place. So we have a, a station in life. We have a post to fill. We have the highest calling that God has given us. And it's our identity. And I have a hunch that whether we're salaried for it or not, we would do it just because we love the Lord and it's the greatest message ever preached. I uh, read a statistic that 73% of American men and 71% of American women say they would continue to work if they did strike it rich all of a sudden. But for the Christian worker, I think an even greater percentage. And I want to speak to you tonight about what that work is and the privileges, we might say, of being God's employees. There's three verses I want to read. It is in the Gospel of John. The setting is the upper room. It's the hours before Jesus goes to the cross and he is priming his disciples. They have just been told that he is going to leave them. They're confused about it. But he tells them about a work, a high calling that he has for them. Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. 
Those three verses, we have heard them, we know them, but they spell out for the Christian worker the privileges of working for God, the privileges of being God's employees. Privilege number one is the privilege of purpose. Jesus uses the word works, the work that I do. I'm passing it on to you like a runner would pass a baton on to the next one. The word he uses is a word that describes energy, uh, putting energy into a task. In other words, God has given to us an assigned task to proclaim the gospel. We have a purpose in life. We know why we're here. And what, what's great about that is that's the one issue that everybody in the world wants settled, isn't it? Everybody comes into this world and asks that question, what is the purpose and meaning of life? Where do I fit in? And we know exactly what our purpose is. Imagine what it would be like if you took an, an Amazonian tribesman out of his native element and placed him without any, any prep at all, any priming, any language instruction in downtown New York City. There he was in Times Square, and you haven't told him what those jumbotrons are or those things with wheels that make noise and, and go honk the cabs in New York. He didn't know any English, and he's there to fend for himself. It would be cruel and disorienting. And so it is to try to live our lives without knowing who made this world, why we're here, and what our purpose is. Henry David Thoreau said something very insightful. He said, most men live lives of quiet desperation. And as a pastor, I've counseled enough people to know that's true. There's a sense of aimlessness about people in this generation. But when we know God, and we know why we're here to serve him, life gets amped up to a higher voltage. We have purpose in our life. Paul wrote and said to the Ephesians, we are God's workmanship, or better yet, work of art, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We're not saved by them, but we're created by God to carry on the work. Most of us know that the Westminster Shorter Confession begins with a question. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is the chief end of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever. And while that is true, I think there is a component that's attached to that. There's a natural progression of spiritual growth so that yes, we wanna know God and yes, we enjoy him forever. But the other component is to serve the Lord, to do the Lord's work. And there's a sense of fulfillment, isn't there, when we know that we're doing what God wants us to do. There seems to be a progression. Somebody comes to know the Lord. And the first stage is salvation. They hear a message. They respond in faith. They make a decision for Christ. They come to church. They read the Bible. They're taught sermon after sermon. But after a while, it's not enough. At first, it's, it's sort of self-centered. Pastor, you've got 30 minutes to bless me. I'm timing you. It better be good today. But then after a while, the decision isn't just salvation, but it's service. What can I do now to serve the Lord? I've been fed. I've been taught. I'm growing. What would the Lord want me to do for him? 
And the thrill is, once we discover God working in us, the great thrill of God working through us. As James said, be doers of the word, not just hearers only. One author put it this way, it's like a son who is being brought into the family business. Instead of racing fast cars and running around with girls, he finally buckles down and says, Dad, I'm a part of it. It's my business too, and I'm going to work hard and undertake the burden of this work. That, says the author, is real maturity. I was in a bookstore some time ago, and I saw a book that the title, just the title, sold me. It's as if the book said, you, come here, buy me now. The name of the book was Why Churches Die. I thought, I've got to have that book. It was written by Hollis Green, and he gives several principles, things that happen in, in any church that could cause it to shrivel up. Principle number one, he says, churches die when converts don't become disciples, when they don't follow it up with a lifestyle of following Christ. Principle number two, he says, when disciples do not become apostles. They don't have a mission in life. They don't have a purpose that drives them forward. He says when that happens, that individual, and if you get a lot of them together in a church, those individuals will eventually die. As you've heard it said many times, churches that don't evangelize will soon fossilize. It can happen with a group, it can happen with an individual. So the first privilege Jesus brings up is the privilege of purpose. My work will be your work. I'm passing it on to you. The second privilege is what I would call the privilege of proportion. The privilege of proportion. Listen to what Jesus says. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Now that's the kind of statement that when I first read it, it just caused me to stop dead in my tracks and think, what on earth does he mean by that? Greater works than Jesus? I mean, the Bible is filled with some of the most incredible miracles. The New Testament records 40 miracles that Jesus performed. Impressive miracles, walking on water, turning water into wine, yeah, healing the terminally ill, raising the dead. And those are only a sample of a greater of number of miracles that Jesus did that were never recorded. For John writes, and he says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So then what does Jesus mean, greater works shall we do than he? I've never stopped a storm. I've created a few, but I've never stopped any. I've never raised a single person from the dead, though I wanted to on many occasions. And it's true, I have prayed for some people and I've watched them get better, but to be honest with you, there's other times that I prayed for people and they got worse. In fact, there was one month some years ago, I just felt like I was on a spiritual losing streak. It seemed like every person I prayed for, they got worse than they were than when they asked for prayer. 
So when somebody would come up to me and say, would you pray for me? I'd say, you don't know what you're asking. But Jesus says greater works. Now, what are we to do with this statement? Well, we can interpret it a few different ways. One way, as is often the case, is to say that Jesus was referring only to doing miracles and only the apostles were going to do them. In other words, it's you 12 or 11 at this point. Judas had left the room. You're going to do some miraculous things. You're going to do greater miracles than I have done. And if you read the book of Acts, the ledger of the early church, you find that the apostles certainly did incredible miracles. Peter and John, there was a man lame from his birth at the gate beautiful. He was healed through God's power. They were the instruments. Paul the apostle, it says, did many unusual, that's the word the Bible uses, unusual miracles. But we have some problems if this only refers to miracles and only to the twelve because as we look at the book of Acts, um, it wasn't just the apostles that were used to perform miracles. Stephen, Barnabas, and others, it says, did great signs and wonders. Second problem we have is Jesus in our text doesn't seem to limit it to the apostles. For Jesus says, he who believes will do greater things. That seems to open it up much wider Third, though the apostles in the book of Acts did great miracles, could they be said to exceed the miracles of Jesus? I don't think so. And fourth, if Jesus only was referring to the miraculous and only to the apostles, what do we do with all of the records of church history written by Ignatius and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Tertullian, all who record great things being done in terms of the miraculous? So I think we could safely rule out that Jesus wasn't speaking here about that as the greater work. There's another way to look at it. Another interpretation is that these are miraculous works done by everyone who has enough faith. And um, those who interpret it this way will emphasize one word in the text. It's the word believe. As if Jesus was saying, if you believe enough, if you have intensity of faith and sufficiency of faith, then you're going to see these things. And this group will tell us the reason we don't see the miracles of the early church is that we don't believe enough. We're negative in our statements, in our confessions, and we need to be much more positive in our confession, and we can speak things into existence that aren't necessarily there. I had a couple in our church a few years ago. They came to visit us. They became a part of our fellowship. Lovely young couple. They had recently lost their baby girl. She died in the emergency room. They were brokenhearted. What had made matters much worse than that is that the church they belonged to, after the death of their daughter, said, your daughter didn't have to die. If you only would have had enough faith, she would still be in your arms. Because Jesus said, greater works than these shall he do. Now, I heard about three guys, they were driving in a car, and the driver 
believed this interpretation very strongly, that you should never say anything negative, but you should speak great words of faith, and it would happen miraculously. There were two others with him, one in the passenger seat and one in the back seat, and the driver was having conversation. He said to the guy next to him, "Uh, how's your brother doing? I haven't seen him in a long time. And he said, oh, well, he's very, very sick. We ought to pray for him. And the driver rebuked him and said, oh, don't say that he's sick. You can say he thinks he's sick, but don't say that he's sick because you're going to sow a negative seed and then he'll get sick. So I said, okay, he thinks he's sick. They were driving a little while longer and he asked the guy in the back seat, hey, how's your uncle? I haven't seen him in a long time either. And the man paused for a while and he said, he thinks he's dead. In other words, it doesn't do any good to live in denial if you've lost your job or if you're feeling a little bit ill and you ask for prayer. It's just honesty. But Jesus doesn't say he who believes to an intense degree, but he would include anyone that believes in him would do greater works. There's a third possibility. That Jesus is speaking of something not in the physical, but something in the spiritual realm, something that is much longer lasting than even a physical miracle. Now we have to just pause for a moment and we have to realize that God doesn't necessarily share our value system. God doesn't necessarily say something is great or greater or more successful or better just because we would define it that way. God says in his word, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Example, when Jesus sent out his 12 on a mission and he sent them around the Sea of Galilee and he gave them miraculous power, cleanse the leper, heal the sick, raise the dead. I give you authority over all the demonic spirits, Jesus said. They came back from that episode extremely excited and animated and they said, Lord, it worked. The demons were subject to us in your name. We've never seen anything like it. Jesus said to them in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, I have given you authority to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Did you get that? Jesus compares a physical miracle with a spiritual work and seems to prefer one over the other. See, Jesus' main mission on earth wasn't to heal. He did that. It demonstrated he was the Messiah, but his main task was to save people from their sin. And you shall call his name Jesus, said the angel, for he will save his people from their sin. Even Jesus himself said the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. The greatest work Jesus ever did and still does is to get lost sinners into heaven. That is the greatest miracle. That is still the greatest work. So when Jesus says, greater works shall you do than these, he didn't mean greater in power or greater in magnitude or greater in intensity. He didn't mean to say, you'll raise more people from the dead than I did. You'll be able to jog on the water, whereas I only walked on the water. You'll turn water into Pepsi or Diet Coke or whatever. 
but it was greater in extent, greater in extent. Think of what Jesus had actually done in his earthly ministry. He spent three and a half years. He trained his disciples. He spoke the gospel of the kingdom, but he never took it outside the borders of Israel. In his lifetime, the gospel never went into Europe or to Rome. But then, think of those group of people in the upper room filled with the Holy Spirit after the day of Pentecost. And those 120, the 11 disciples included, the 11 apostles, went out through Judea, through Sumeria, through Syria, through Asia Minor, through Macedonia, Greece, Ethiopia, and into Rome, within 30 years, all those areas were reached. Greater works. Think of Peter's first sermon. 3,000 people respond to the gospel. This is Peter, a changed man. It is estimated by conservative scholars that within six to nine months, there were 20,000 saved people in the church at Jerusalem after the ascension of Christ. There were more people saved in a few months than the entire three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus Christ upon the earth. Within 300 years, Christianity permeated the Roman Empire. Temples were closed. Gentiles, as well as Jews, were reached. So these works were quantitatively greater because as Jesus says, I'm going to my Father. And he will explain a couple chapters later, if I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit living in every believer, wherever we go, is able to give a life-giving message of the cross. And that's what Luke meant when he opens up the book of Acts and he says, the former treatise that I wrote to you, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. In other words, Theophilus, the first book that I wrote, the Gospel of Luke, that was just the beginning. Jesus began miracles and this message of the cross, but now he is continuing it. It's still going on through the instruments that he has chosen to get the Gospel out into all the world. Now you add that promise to what we have available today, things like the media that God has allowed us to even use, radio, television, the internet, books, tapes, CDs now, MP3 files that can be sent with a gospel message. A few years ago, most of us were down in Puerto Rico, and what an astonishing set of evenings we had, didn't we? It was called Un Encuentro con Dios, an encounter with God. But the message was sent via satellite to 185 different countries simultaneously in 116 translated languages simultaneously, and 10 million people each night heard the gospel as they gathered in churches, in schools, in public buildings, out in fields where there were screens set up. The gospel was heard around the world. Greater works shall you do than this. And then I think of Operation Christmas Child and the incredible opportunity of giving a gift in the name of Christ and putting a gospel track and a little presentation by school children or by a local pastor. 
and how far that can go as millions and millions of these packages go out each year. So those are the two privileges. The privilege of purpose, my work is your work. The privilege of proportion, I'm going to the Father, I'm gonna fill you with the Spirit, and the works are gonna go on, and greater works than these shall he do. And there's a third privilege. It's the privilege of prayer. Tied to this, Jesus says, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Not only do we have a task, not only is it a great task, but we have great resources to do the work. And let's never forget that our first recourse, as well as resource, ought to be prayer. Amidst all of the strategizing, amidst all of the budgeting, number one on the list is to pray and to ask God for souls, to ask God to bless the ministry, to ask God to give us his vision and insight. We must never leave our knees when we strategize and when we prepare. Now, as most of you know, these verses have been greatly misunderstood as if it's some magical formula that you can just ask God for anything you feel like, and then as long as you tack on in Jesus' name, it's like some magical abracadabra, <laughs> it's going to work. That's not what he's saying. It's all part of the package, isn't it? The package of doing the work, taking the gospel message out. Jesus said, ask anything in my name, and it's that the Father may be glorified, Jesus said. It's very similar to what John said in 1 John chapter 5 when he wrote, This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know we have what we have asked of him. So imagine what our prayer's like if we would tack that on the end of them. Lord, I'm praying this because I know that's what Jesus would want. And I know that you would be glorified if you granted it. I'll tell you what, it would trim down a lot of our prayers, wouldn't it? I mean, imagine asking, Lord, I really need that brand new high-powered speedboat because I know that's what Jesus would want and you would be glorified. Oh, take that back, Lord. Let me come up with something a little bit different. So when we pray, when we talk to God, it's in the name of Jesus, by the way, in ancient Judaism, when you would approach somebody in another's name, it meant you are carrying the reputation or the character of that person. You know what it's like when somebody says, this is a very tough restaurant to get into, but if you just use my name, they'll put you at the best table. Really? I can use your name? Yep, just tell them I sent you. And that opens the door of opportunity. You have access because of a name. If you were to visit my mother in Southern California, let's say you were just out there and you thought, you know, I'm going to just see if I can spend the night at Skip's mom's house. Why buy a hotel? And if you were to knock on her door, she's in her mid-80s, she would open it very sheepishly. And if you were to say, hi, Mrs. Heitzig, um, I'd like to spend the night here or, or two, and could you feed me as well? She would slam that door on your face so quickly. But if you were to come and say, 
I come to you in Skip's name. He sent me here. He said that if I'm ever in the area, you'd put me up for a while and feed me. You'd have a chance of that door remaining open at least a few minutes. <laughs> and if I called her in advance, and indeed you did out of access, you could get in. Well, the more we know God, the more we're acquainted with him, the more we know how to pray, and the more we're going to hear yes from him. You know, the more you understand a person, you don't even have to ask certain things. I was tucking my son into bed once. It was 9 o'clock sharp. This is when he was much younger. He wouldn't like me talking about tucking him into bed any longer, but I did. And that night, I said to him at 9 o'clock, Nathan, do you know what I want you to do right now? He nodded his head and he said, you want me to brush my teeth? I said, bingo. I didn't even have to say brush your teeth. He knew what I was thinking because we knew each other. And the more we know the Lord, the more we're going to pray according to the reputation and character of Jesus that the Father may be glorified. When was the last time we prayed, Lord, I want to see greater works than these accomplished in my life. You know, James says we have not because we ask not. And I think many Christians don't even get around to asking God what they want him to do. And thus the unproductive life. I want to close with a question that I think a lot of people ask. When you talk about the work of God, the gospel of Christ, the need for salvation, the, the largeness of the task at hand, there's often an objection. They say the task is too big, the work is too hard, the people are too many. Where do we begin? What do we do? Well, I want to answer that, first of all, by saying God never calls us to be manufacturers. We're distributors, aren't we? We don't have to come up with a message. We just deliver the goods. It's his message. It's his work. We're just the instruments. All we have to do is deliver the message, ask God to fill us with his spirit, and deliver the goods, and watch the Lord work. We are not manufacturers. We are just distributors. Second, I believe it's the largeness of the task that keeps us going. Not the smallness of it, not the manageability of it, but the largeness of it. Listen to Jesus' command. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Talk about a tremendous task. That's why it's called the Great Commission. Not the mediocre commission, not the small commission, the Great Commission. It's a large and noble task. And we rise to the occasion. Just like we have seen in this country after September 11th, people rise to the occasion and say, we're going to help one another. In God's work, even though the task is big, because it is so large, it propels us. You know, the communists, at their, their height, their heyday, they used to recruit people by telling folks, this is a hard job. It may cost you your life. You have to give everything for it. And the communist leader said we had to turn people away. And so we are given a tremendous task. When the task becomes too small, we shrivel up. And some people's world shrivels so small to just I, me, and mine. 
and there's no impetus to go on. Somebody well said, the smallest package in the world is you wrapped up in yourself. So, the largeness of the task propels us. Three, and I'll close with this, great works are done by a combination of smaller parts. Great works are done by a combination of smaller parts together. You can't do it all. And you know what? God doesn't expect you to do it all. He expects you just to do your part and to see your part as part of the great work. No matter how small you might think it is, no matter how unimportant you might think you are, there are no important parts in the body of Christ. A visitor to a construction site saw three men doing exactly the same job. Each had a hammer and a chisel, was working on stone. And uh, the visitor said to the first guy, what are you doing? He said, well, can't you see? I'm cutting a rock. He asked the second man, what are you doing? He said, I'm making a wall. He asked the third one, what are you doing? He said, I'm building a cathedral. Perspective is everything. They were all at the same task, but to one of those involved, I'm building a cathedral. This is a great work. I read a story this week by a woman named Linda Clare from Eugene, Oregon, who's a child care provider. It was a rough week, she said, and she had been praying to God something like this. Lord, certainly you want more from my life than just being a babysitter. Some great and glorious calling you've, you've called me to do. I'm just a babysitter. What is it you want me to do, Lord? That afternoon, a father came to pick up his little daughter named Casey, a toddler. And as he was picking her up from the daycare center, he said, Claire, can I ask you a question? She said, anything. You've taught my daughter Casey how to pray, haven't you? She said, well, yes, sir, I have. He said, I figured you have because every day when I bring her home, she wants to say grace. We haven't had the meal prepared yet, and she wants to say grace. She goes, we don't pray in my house. But after listening to her pray, I told my wife, we need to find a church. We need to get back to church. Then it was crystal clear in Claire's mind. She said, this is God's holy purpose for me. And now she says, when anyone asks me, what do you do for a living? She smiles and she says, I'm just a babysitter for Jesus. Some of you will recall a film put out a few years back called Chariots of Fire. It's a story about a runner named Eric Little from Scotland who eventually became a missionary to China. He knew that God's calling was upon his life eventually to go to China, but he wanted to run in the Olympics. And at a very poignant portion of the movie, his sister Jenny and Eric Little are having a conversation about Eric's calling in life. It was in the front of a church. And Jenny was saying, Eric, God has called you for a great and noble task. And he said to her, it was a classic, he's from Scotland, he said, Jenny, I know that God made me for a purpose, but I also know that God made me fast. And when I run, 
I feel his pleasure. I've always loved that phrase, when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I babysit, I feel his pleasure. When I answer the phone, I feel his pleasure. When I do whatever God has called me to do personally, whether it's to be an evangelist in a pulpit before thousands or millions, or tens or twenties, or to answer the phone and to give the love of Christ, or to babysit, or to cut stone, or to run a camera, it's a great work because it's God's work. And we put them all together and God will be glorified. Let's pray for that. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be a part of the body of Christ doing your work upon this planet. And as has already been mentioned, so many people have been asking spiritual questions and we see this day in which we live in as a time of great opportunity. How privileged we are to be your co-laborers, Father. You've given us the privilege of purpose. You passed your work on to us. You've given us the privilege of proportion because we see so many come to Christ and we believe so many more will. And Lord, you've given us the privilege of access, prayer, into your throne room. And when we pray for souls, when we pray for your glory, when we pray that Jesus' name would be uplifted, we know that's exactly what you want. And we know that you're going to answer it. So Lord, we're in a win-win situation. Thank you that your plan includes us. Continue, Lord, your hand of blessing upon Billy and Ruth, Franklin, Jane, everybody in both organizations. In these days, months, and years ahead, show us, Lord, what great work you have in store. In Jesus' name, amen.